welcome, listener. You have encountered yet another dumpster fire. This is Flail Forward, the podcast about tabletop role-playing game, de- game design and amateurism. I am this episode's host, Carreras Naur, otherwise known as Car. And with me is um, Catrice. Yep, I'm here, honest. <laughs> Jonathan. Hello. The inevitable Kevlar. Yeah, hi. Uh, Mark. Hello. And Rob. Hey, everybody. So this episode, we will be discussing Neurotology and Ludology, which are... um, Ludology is the study of games and gameplay. And Narratology is the study of narrative and narrative structure. So it's basically the aspects of tabletop that are game and our story. So <clears throat> I think I should premise, preface this with a small statement that if you happen to torture yourself with going and looking up these terms on the internet, you will usually see them framed as adversarial and that there's been a debate about them, about whether games are stories or games or just games or yada yada. But the debate did not happen. It was basically people who understand games yelling game design, game design, and people about a few people on the other side yelling Narratology, narratology, and mostly the most qualified speakers on the subject advocated for both. So, hence why this episode is titled A Song Without Verses. It's narratology and ludology. So, um, so. This is a topic that I put on the agenda and now we're finally on it because I think it's important to understand like the dynamics between the two areas. Mm-hmm. Um, so I punished everyone with a <laughs> lot of reading beforehand. Yeah, you did, um, you fucker. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, we're, um, we're not going to argue this and he's going to punish you too for listening to this. <laughs> Right. So, well, listening is its own punishment, but like they're surprisingly study of these dynamics of gameness and storiness are rather recent, like really they only go back to the late nineties and the authors that we studied, at least some of us are, um, Espen Arseth, Jesper Jewell, Gonzalo Frasca, um, Marku Escalinen, Henry Jenkins, and Janet Murray. So uh, if you the Janet like... Murray paper that we wrote was actually by multiple authors, and I don't remember all their names off the top of my head. But actually, that file was three separate articles. Yes, and I'm only I'm only counting the first part of it. Okay as on the agenda so if you want to go find those these writings those are the authors you can yeah we'll probably have a we'll probably have a list in the description yeah 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 fred put them in the show notes (laughs) the only thing is that a lot of those uh articles refer mostly to either classical games or um video games so I think our discussion tonight will probably focus much more on how these two terms intersect with role-playing games. Um, so it's a little bit more specific as to what kind of concepts we want to talk about tonight. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'd say they yeah, actually even, were almost... Yeah, yeah even Arseth cautioned against applying study of one medium blindly to another medium. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, these are mostly about computer games, which are not tabletop games, even though they have many parallels. Yeah, for some so, reason, there just doesn't seem to be a lot in the academic world about study of, you know, tabletop role-playing games. So we're kind of having to fill in the blanks as we speak. This is basically a paper being written as you listen. <laughs> yeah. Without an edit. It's afterwards. <laughs> yeah, they're... The, the, these authors do, on occasion, make reference to tabletop games, but at a, but at a great distance and very obliquely. So they're aware of them, but they haven't. It's clear that they haven't studied them or put any stock in them, because, frankly, they're writing about computer games. That's not really their topic. So, um, okay. So let's dive into more of. What are ludology and narratology? Um, okay, jump ball. Who wants to grab it? Um, yeah, ludology, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, ludology to me is is you're 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 taking a look at what makes games work like games, right? The so that to me is going to be the mechanics and the dynamics of it and uh, partially the aesthetics too, because the uh, game mechanics could have an aesthetic quality to them for sure. Um, I'd just like to point out that ludology was based on ludos, not like, you know, mm -hmm. Luddites, which is what I first thought of when I saw it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, from Ludo. the, it's, it, it's from the Latin. Ludo is Greek. No, it's Greek. Greek. It's Greek for game. It should be Greek because ology is Greek, but yeah, that doesn't necessarily mean it is. But definitely not. <laughs> so okay, so we can broadly say that ludology it's, it's is. Yeah, it's definitely yeah, it's that Ludo is what Ludo is Latin, pretty, despite the fact it's sure. in a Greek structure. Yeah. I was pretty sure I took two years of okay. Latin. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, I was going to move on, but <laughs> so we can we could say that ludology is the 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 study of how games operate, the the mechanisms and the player interface, and as Rob said, aesthetics and the 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 dynamics of what happens in the gameplay, right? Yeah. Yep. It can and also then, be encompass. So uh, it can also encompass directives that are not directly gameplay. Yes, um, which is more applicable to tabletop, really, yes. than digital. Right. Uh, so well, you still got to load the game properly. <laughs> yeah, blow in the cartridges. Yep. Um, <laughs> what? And who wants to? go in on uh, narratology. Yeah, I think narratology is um, viewing games through lens of it being able to recount or tell a story um, in much a similar way, or I guess classically in a way that you would be able to convey through uh, books or speech or movies. Um, and does a game have those elements or can you apply narrative uh, ideas to analyzing and understanding games. One thing I'd seen that, like the papers that we've been looking through, had kind of been putting out there was that it you can kind of structure pretty much any media format by looking at it as though it were like classical uh, literature. And you can break it down in that way, even if it doesn't actually have a narrative to it, you can still technically view it using the same kind of lens, as it were. You so, can, but uh, most of the experts will feel caution against doing that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not an ideal way to do that, but that's some of, some of the papers still try to do it anyway. 
Okay. So, um, in our off week last week, we discussed um, what is a game mechanic, and I think really late in that discussion, we um, <laughs> arrived at a solution. After yeah. everybody had left. Yeah, 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 I got, got here late. And I was like, I was trying to mediate between cat and car. I was just like, just guys, stop arguing. And then we figured it out, I guess. Right. So what we figured out was that the concept of a rule is an umbrella term that covers player directives, like things the players do to interact with the game or interact around the game and mechanics which mostly have to do with the simulation that the game sets up yes is that correct that seems yeah. reasonable i want to define one more term before we start and it's only because i feel like uh, if i talk at all i'll be referencing it a fair bit and i feel like it's important to this discussion i'm probably going to talk about when discussing ludology and eridology as concepts, I'm probably going to try to talk about game or tabletop games as storytelling engines. And I'd like somebody who's not me to try to to try to explain why I think this is that's an important term to define at the start here and how it connects the concept, to the The concept of the story engine. Yeah, the tell a storytelling engine. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's that's kind of why I put this this topic on the list. Which, yeah, role playing games are story engines. They're like all the cogs and gears and all that machinery. Most of them is is the machinery that the players then interface with and make it run and as it runs it produces two things a player experience and a narrative that that's my stance anyway yes i i agree with that by and large yeah yep i think it's interesting and maybe i'm just gonna throw this into a tangent but it it's it's almost more like a story creating engine like we can tell and retell stories um where like yeah just when we play role-playing games we create something most likely new um derivative frequently but new yes yeah Yeah. yeah. (laughs) well hey i mean all stories are derivative basically um but but i'm gonna steal story I'm going to steal the term story creation engine instead of storytelling yeah. engine. Yeah, story creation engine is good because it isn't actually a storytelling engine. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point because it does allow the players through their choices to actually create the story as it's being narrated. Like they, they're narrating the story to each other, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a new story every time. That's that's one of the beauties of the medium is that you you have no idea talk to any gm you have no idea where it's gonna go yeah it's that's why it's so fun you know i think it was interesting because i put this down in my notes when i was doing some of the prep for this session too um because i think that a lot of the concepts that come from ludology and narratology don't necessarily apply to rpgs because rpgs exist in such a unique space like it's it's not a narrative. It's a it's a like you said, like a story creation engine. Like it's bigger. It encompasses more space than a narrative. It's uh, um, you know I actually think it's a very tiny space that's a very precise intersection right at the crossroads of narratology and ludology. Right at the crossroads of game and narrative because the game is inextricable from the narrative and vice versa. Because you're all in a role playing game, you're always trying to reach into the fiction and either describe it or interact with it and change it. And each time you do that, you're, you're passing the narrative through the needle of the thread that is your choice. Like it, it, mm. your choices are this little eye of the needle and you're passing the narrative that you're taking from other people and then delivering back a different narrative based on your own choice and so it's like this continuous 
threading of a needle, or at least that's how I, it, uh, that's like the most apt metaphor I can think of. Like as you're just, it's continuously being drawn through and, and what's being drawn through, nobody can predict exactly, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I go, go ahead. I, I think you're right. I think maybe what it is, if you're drawing it like a Venn diagram, then I think RPGs encompass sort of like it's a third bubble of this Venn diagram where mm-hmm. it exists between the space of narratives and games, but it also has, I think, more elements to it than either of those two separately. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think there's even more circles on the Venn diagram. Cause if you look at tabletop play dynamics, like the, the classical terms, like literary study only really has a grasp of the reader role and the author role, mm-hmm. but <clears throat> tabletop exists in, in that intersection, like Rob said, that creates even more roles. There's reader, author, navigator, curator, spectator, even mm-hmm. on different roles that a player can shift in and out of at any time as the, during gameplay. Yeah, it's actually, I, I, as I was making a note to myself with the term distributed authorship, felt like something that needed to be sort of added to the lexicon because that's what's going on. It is a distributed authoring like you were saying there's other roles that come up like curator somebody who who kind of like logs what's going on is a whole other thing that is many games have somebody at the table just taking notes and that's a that's <laughs> God damn well, it, Jonathan. <laughs> i shouldn't have looked um anyway um but but well uh, if, i totally lost if my curator if curator is after the fact, then there must be a before the fact role as well, which is mostly what the GM does. The, right. The preparer, yeah. which is kind of the the on the other temporal side of the gameplay from curating. Mm-hmm. So planning out the plot or setting up encounters and making the NPCs, that's all preparatory. Right. That's a preparatory role. Yeah, and which doesn't need to exist in in every game. Like, what's interesting about this is other t- tabletop RPGs don't have a static set of roles other than well, except for they don't have a static set of roles Authorin. except for player, because e- even well, no, because you can well, have games that are effectively that are have distributed the GM duties out. It's just whoever is the author at that moment is doing a thing that the other players then sort of uh, observe as a continuation of the narrative, but they get to pick it up as soon as somebody else puts it down. Right. That, that I wasn't going to contest that. I was, I was going towards like, yeah, everybody's a player, but if you delve into the typology of play of player, mm-hmm. then that's where we get to the, all these other meta roles right. where there's the, stereotypical player but then there's the possibly distinct gm and Mm. yeah role-playing games are excessively dynamic in that they don't they don't have to adhere to any of these structural paradigms yeah yeah right which is not to say discussing structural paradigms is useless even if they are incomplete and not universal, it's still worth discussing the nature of these paradigms in this medium. I forgot what my actual point was. Right, and so the two main meta roles, GM and player, hmm. are mostly defined in how, in how they interact with the gameplay. Yeah, to an extent, and also scope is is generally something that's that's defined when you define GM and player, like how much of the world they can affect at a time. You know, in in the oldest RPGs, it was pretty much you had control over your character, and that's about it. Uh, more modern games are in in the space where, uh, uh, as as a player, less. And not a GM, you are you can still make uh, world contributions and story contributions outside your character's uh, direct agency. 
which I think is, uh, I think, an evolution of the medium, you know, that we're seeing. It, yeah. It, yeah, is, it, was, it has it, its it, issues, too, though, because when you in, increase the authority of someone, you're also increasing the, the workload that the individual has to deal with. And you're splitting and dividing their attention up between other things. So in some ways, it is kind of an evolution, but I think it's more of a side grade in some ways rather than a straight upgrade. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, okay. Trade-offs, sure. yeah. Yeah, there's trade-offs, yeah. Yeah, and, and it, even, even the meta rules have evolved because it was common in the 70s where you could get into a play dynamic where the players were playing the characters, but ultimately were just passengers in the GM story. Mm-hmm. And that's not common anymore. Like we've realized how vast player agency is mm-hmm. and the value of that and how giving non-GM players more freedom benefits the entire experience yep absolutely yeah, i would agree yeah i would agree with that yeah i would say it's not as common as we'd like to think it is like it, it is definitely it's not as obvious as it no it's, it's becoming more common in the design of new games but in terms of the average player there's still like a lot of players that they very much so are just uh basically along for the ride of the GM telling them a bedtime story. And their actions really don't have a lot of impact. In the last few 5e campaigns I played, I found that the GM was very cognizant of the importance of um, player agency, but he got very lost and somewhat frustrated when that meant that his storyline was was sidetracked to one degree or another. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is sort of unfortunate and something that um sort of needs to be uh I don't know about it. addressed it, like accounted I, yeah, for yeah. because it, it's, it's inevitable. Yeah. Well it's yeah. kind of an issue with that I think has arisen because of the move towards um emphasizing modules even more in the last few years as they try to uh, crew like new players to uh, just role-playing games in general, they've tried to kind of simplify it in some ways. And unfortunately part of the way that it's been simplified is basically ending up removing a lot of the player's agency because that's one of the most complicated parts of the game is when the players do something that nobody expected is like that can be one of the most amazing things that happens but it's also one of the times that it's like okay nobody knows what to do here now yeah well yeah i think there's oh go ahead well where do modules fit in this i mean because that that's kind of an interesting thought like what do modules make uh role-playing games if if um at one point we're talking about this weird mixture and encompassing of ludology and narratology. And and what does a module make that when when so much of that narrative is sort of predetermined? It turns them into a video game. (laughs) No, it doesn't. Modules are the gameplay equivalent of paint by numbers. I have never played a module, so I don't have anything to say about this i i I think the downside to modules particularly and with the resurgence of the mega module coming out in in fifth edition where they have where they're releasing several hardcover books as um uh you know sort of to sort of unify the player base i think that's the main point of it so that everybody has sort of an experience with these things kind of like they're like a movie that everybody's watched um yeah and i think that's the whole premise of that yeah and and so i yeah yeah and but the downside to that is that um i see a lot of uh questions and i see a lot of concern about how to write good modules and how to write good adventures and it's to me that's it's missing the point it's uh 
you're in creating a pre-generated path like that, you're setting yourself up for that kind of frustration that you just described a second ago, Jonathan, with, the, with, the, with, with your friend who was, um, you know, wanted to want player agency to be a paramount concern and yet was running things where the path was already set and like, you know, encounters 10, mm-hmm. 10 fights down the road were already known. And in the advantage of the role-playing game medium is that you, you know, with a well-designed game, you don't need to do that. You don't, you don't need to do that, that level of prep for the game to be good. Um, and in fact, it actually, I think at some point uh, there's a level of prep you go past where, um, you start detracting from the experience. Yeah. Well, it's not diminishing returns. You, you start detracting from the experience, not your own, as you spent three hours on an encounter that the players beat in five minutes, or you do something where you plan out a series of events and forget to take something into account and the player's completely bypass something or and you just want to keep them on this thing because they're supposed to do this thing in order to get this thing and now you you don't know what to do because you you structured uh the you structured a narrative prior to player agency and yet you want to include player agency in the equation and you yeah no yeah yeah (laughs) you can't do it I think there's a balance to be that we've seen between prep for the game narratively and the like improvisational necessity during gameplay. Like there's a balance. There's there's an oscillation there. Yeah. Some games, some games are more amenable to one than the other. That's just the nature of their design. Yeah, to bring this back to our actual topic of narratology and ludology, I actually want to posit something here for a moment. The narrative, if you have like a module, it has a narrative. In fact, it has a narrative that may be pre-written that doesn't include anything the players are going to do. The very nature of the gameplay side of it, the ludology side, is where the part where the players can actually do things other than what's actually in the pre-written narrative. And to that end, I think that's actually like the bridging gap between the two is when you start including the gameplay side of things, that's when the players actually become players that change the nature of the game while they're playing it. And once you're doing that, then it's through that that you basically have them able to affect the narrative itself. Otherwise, they're just along for the ride. Yeah, a module is basically a primordial script and a bunch of, for to use a metaphor, movie sets that establish a premise for narrative. But as soon as the gameplay gets going, like everybody has free will and can do what they want and whether or not anything is anything that's been prepared gets followed it the 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 all that prepared stuff the gameplay is how that moves from like a quantum superposition of pop, of possibilities to a discrete reality in the gameplay it is a little silly, though, when you think about it, that you want everybody to follow the script, but you didn't give them a copy. <laughs> well, see, that's that's part of the design aesthetic of modules is that it's not really a script in the way that a screenplay is. Like you have you have to write a module from the from the perspective of this is the possibility I'm focusing on, but it's not the only one. Right. Very few are, though. Yeah, a lot of them don't handle it that way, unfortunately. And a lot of gameplay diverges from the module in ways that its author could not anticipate. Right, I, I guess in a module, the the ending 
theoretically is always the same, but that that buddy cop scene in the middle is different for everyone. <laughs> That's a good analogy. Yeah. <laughs> the buddy cop scene in the middle. <laughs> yeah, I, that's that's a common thing. RPGs always have that buddy cop scene. You're like, <laughs> but I'm happy for uh, Wizards of the Coast to create super huge, expensive modules because then when all the new players they attract are fed up with it, they can come play my games. That's right. <laughs> and uh, I'm any glad there's games. Yeah, any of our games. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean that that, that, that is a sad reality. Oftentimes, of game designers, we're just waiting for other people to get fed up with D and D too. Yeah, well, my wait. Ninety-five percent of tabletop games exist because somebody was not satisfied with D and D. Yeah, probably. Oh well, certainly almost. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, since it's so, a hobby, what do you expect? Like, it's, yeah. it's even though it's a business, the people that are making these, like everybody who makes like an RPG, is making an RPG because they like RPGs. You don't get people that are making it purely for the profit, because there isn't a whole bunch, and you have to be really invested in RPGs. To in with before you will ever see that profit so you're only seeing the people that were already basically really into rpgs in the first place and as it's a hobby they're only going to make something if it happens to be something they wanted that didn't exist so it kind of makes sense or something they wanted something that worked a certain way that no no other thing provided. Yeah. I mean, okay. So let's has. All right, so let's move on to what are the ludic and narratological elements of tabletop games? I thought where Cat was going with this previously was interesting and and really hits the nail on the head. It, they're, I mean, depending on the structure of the game, but just supposing a GM, a portion of the narrative is proposed, but for the creation to happen, the players have to interact with the game or ludic parts. So often to create narrative, you have to play. Um, and I think so, so it's, it's hard. It's interesting because although a specific game mechanic is very game or, or ludic, um, but the outcome is, is narrative, which, so, so I don't know. It makes me wonder if we can classify any thing as one thing or the other. But I'd be happy to hear everyone try to do that. I think we can classify different parts of a tabletop as at least contributing more to one one or the other. Yeah. And I don't, like, I, I would really like us to avoid falling into the trap of narrative only happens during gameplay it doesn't but if you want to change the narrative it generally happens during gameplay generally right so like even in a module if there's a map of the area that map is narrative right yeah it's it's pretty static you don't really interact with it. It's there's no game component to it. It's the same thing with the stat block and description of any NPC or monster. That's narrative. Well, once you're talking about Fred's game, I mean, you literally take the map there and write on it with a marker. <laughs> well, Fred has sur- subverted that 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 dynamic in an interesting way. Yeah, which is he's, which is a good thing. I'm not complaining. Mm-hmm. And still speaks to how fluid role-playing games are. 
Yeah. Um, so like, I think, um, like describing a character is narrative and the like filling out stats is kind of both because they have, even though they're mechanical, they have narrative implications. Yeah. So yeah. like an 18 intelligence, yeah, that has specific numeric right. meaning. Mm -hmm. It also means that the character is smart and presumably will be played that way. It informs part but of like, the character's makeup and psychology. Yeah, sure. Right. But then something like how, like what dice to roll are their directives according to our structure of game mechanics. Um, but then using them propels the narrative, you would think. Because then we get into the whole fail forward concept, which is relatively new. And like, yeah, I, I think that's right. I think that's right. There's, uh, there's, it, it, it's, it's hard to extricate any one piece mm -hmm. except the directives, really, because the directives are just, are, are just uh, the tabletop equivalent version of board game rules, right? It's, it's, take this piece, put it here. Um, when this happens, uh, do this, that kind of thing. So when you need to make an attack, you pick up the die. The die picking up the die is not a game mechanic; it's a directive as to how to make the mechanic do something. You know, you need a random number generated, so you pick up a die, a d20, and roll it. Um, and then, but the, that that little part right there, that pick up the d20 and roll it, doesn't have any narrative impact yet until you know what the die rolled and then what that means to the narrative. But the directives, I think, the directives are like the most a narratological piece for us yeah they're they're the most ludic piece yeah that's what i should have because, said <laughs> yeah because they they define how the players interface with the rest of the it, narrative really. itself yeah, yeah. I, th I think um i guess what's interesting in during play or one thing I notice about narrative specifically and and I guess how narratology looks at that like how how is the narrative structured one thing I find is that narrative is used to bridge um, portions of the game that it's it's not clear how one thing goes from another um, I see if I could explain this how I'm thinking about it, but um, it could be very uh, specific, like from attack to defense in in a in a fight scene, um, because you could have one or two roles that say a hit and then a, a a miss, or or you hit them and then they hit you, um, and then the narrative is sort of thrown over top to to make sense to give a vid visual of that whole scene which the, the game doesn't do often. Um, or it could be uh, a little more grand where you're rolling uh, an engagement role, for example, in Blades in the Dark. Um, and a good role demands a narrative that, that gives you an advantage going into the situation. And a bad role demands a narrative that... Um, puts you in a bad position going into a situation. So I find like so, the... Or at least a less than ideal. Like something yeah. negative happens. It doesn't necessarily have to be extremely negative. You can have oh, a bad you know, in Blades in the Dark, just... In Blades in the Dark, if you fuck up, like it's really bad <laughs> at the beginning. I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there, there's lots in that. You're right. I wasn't yeah. really designated in very specific levels of problems, but just, it was just giving an example. Yeah, yeah there are three. So, is... Just had to nip yeah you do so, so is it fair to say then that the 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 mechanics propel the narrative 
or propel the events, but the narrative is the interpretation of the mechanics results. In a lot of cases, I don't, I don't think it's always that, but it can, and you especially notice it if you wind up having mechanical results that don't make a lot of sense, and then you try to struggle to explain those results in, a, in the narrative itself. Like, if, the, if you try to do something that is simply just wrong for your character to do but it's mechanically the best the best choice or the mechanics flat out tell you that you do this whether you would or not normally uh prime example i guess would be uh being mind controlled for example then you can struggle with like the narrative not necessarily making like a ton of sense like it's not too bad with uh mind control but there are other situations where it just starts getting really awkward because they don't line up very well. Okay, that leads us into the premise of players treating their characters as tokens on the board versus treating them as characters more like a like fictional constructs as they would be in literature. Yeah, and and where, just to kind of... Where the, where the players are always motivated to find the best advantage rather than adhere to the character's nature. Right? Yeah, I, I think um, this is kind of jumping back, but it also kind of plays into what you're talking about. But I think it's it's worth saying just to I I agree with the previous statement you made about sort of interpret narrative interprets uh, game game outcomes um, because it demands that they be interpreted. But I think there's situations where the game doesn't care, but narrative still demands to be sort of input. Um, like for example. Um, you come into a town and y your character is going to take some actions that are strictly for the character's own desires and but the game doesn't care about those actions um i'm going to go talk to my mother whatever and then it's a strictly narrative portion of the game or uh, there's the other side of it where the game doesn't really care if there is narrative it just wants events to happen like it doesn't care if it didn't it doesn't care if results are interpreted at all it only relies on roll to attack roll to damage and doesn't care about the meaning of those outcomes right no yeah there are games like that and they just posit that the action is the narrative you are holding a sword, you attack with it, uh, you hit, and that's the narrative, as basic as that. Some games do suggest that the, the narrative doesn't matter, in the sense that it's complete with the game. Yeah, for the most part, though, like, just as humans, we have problems with that. Like, the way our brain works generally is pattern recognition. Like, we have to make sense of why something is being done. It's like, okay, I'm hitting it with my sword. Why am I hitting it with my sword? Oh, it's a monster. Well, just stating that it's a monster, that it's purely evil, well, there, there's your narrative. It doesn't need a very strong narrative, but we have to have something in place in most cases. You yeah, can do it yeah, you can do it completely completely abstract like there's not really a lot of premise behind tetris for example but even in that case like there's that video that even robert linked earlier which gave like a good example of it where you've literally got like actual characters playing 
the game and there's like a god of tetris who is deciding which blocks you're given like <laughs> we make yeah. a narrative even if there isn't one right yeah that's a good point and it's the same with chess where the pieces mm-hmm. don't what the pieces are called doesn't matter only what they do but as like you said as humans we understand it better if we have a structure that makes sense to us so we have mm-hmm. kings and queens and knights and and pawns no, and the stuff. pawns are not choir boys and even if they were they'd be safe from the besha the bishop was only called that because the 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 piece was at at some point in the 14th century resembled the mitre of a bishop's head it was originally an archer weirdly enough well there you go i i wanted to know exactly why the fuck it was called a bishop one day (laughs) because it didn't make like why is a bishop on a battlefield this is i don't okay for and why is he moved diagonal and what what the hell is I didn't. I really didn't get it. So I, I looked at it as an archer. It's like, oh, that makes way more sense. And that's <laughs> to your yeah. point. Like, we need to know. Like, it bugged me that the bishop piece didn't fit the fiction. I mean, there's stuff like that all the time. It's like I found out when I was uh, ghostwriting a novel set in Jerusalem. All things that the whole term for like checkmate is. Shasmat, king is dead. So there's there's like a story behind everything, even in like chats. Oddly enough, like we will create a story even if there isn't one, or even if it's not needed necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe it is needed. Maybe that's just how our brains work. The point. Yeah, actually, it, it, it really is. Our brains are really good at making narrative because yeah. we have a sense of future. Right. This is one of the things that makes us human uh is, is that Deep we have Blue a, doesn't need it but but we need it yeah we really need it because otherwise we fall off cliffs <laughs> i mean literally right we don't know that hey what's gonna happen next i don't know but oh, the ones that figured it out survived and yeah. uh we you know we tell ourselves story we've been telling ourselves stories for a lot longer than we've been doing anything else that's remotely civilized um and those stories were you know initially just about like hey i did this thing and didn't die cool and then they they, the 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 how not to die gradually got more and more abstracted Uh, yeah and then you started getting things like morality plays and such where the story ended up telling you what you shouldn't do or what you should do right right and so i think it's 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 all too natural and i think as 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 we're kind of creeping towards the point of like, it's, it's, it's inevitable and just how humans see things. So we, we will, we will try and apply a narrative structure to just about anything. Uh, and because it's just how we're wired and, you know, the, even you, you, you even apply a narrative structure sometimes to the directive of picking up and rolling the dice. Like you said, I hope the dice, dice gods are with me or something like that that how many i've heard that before and that's that's a narrative like that's you're implying yeah, something I mean, into the directive of, of rolling the dice itself without even you know it's like a, this I mean, whole meta narrative around the game it's, the, it's not even it's it's not even just narratives it's finding any kind of causal structure yeah which well, is narrative just precedes that right everything but yeah like even the rolling the dice, as you said, in the webcomic turn signals on a land raider. The mm-hmm. dice are a character. Right. They don't do anything, but they're they're referred to as a character. Yeah, but, this goes to that point, yeah. And it's just what we kind of have to do. Like, we'll create things to make sense of things. Like, it, it's not okay to have, like, oh, why did all these terrible things happen to us? It's like, I don't know, volcano just erupted? That's not a very good reason. It's like, well, we need control over something. So we say, well, the volcano god is angry. And it's like, well, as soon as there's a god there, there's something you can reason with. There's something you can talk to. And it's like, okay, we we didn't do something and it pissed off 
the volcano god. What can we do to make the volcano god happy again? Like, just as soon as you do that, it's that whole connectivity of, like, cause and effect. We have to have a cause and effect, and that's basically what narrative ends up doing in some way, is yeah, it structures a cause and effect. Yep. Is it, is. Is, it then, is it then here where we define what narrative is as far as games go? Like, I think I would want to define it as temporal progress within the fiction, or at least temporal movement within the fiction. Like the series of changed states. I, I'm not. I'm not a hundred percent sure it has to be temporal. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. I like series of changed states better, but yeah. um, because temporal is more plot than narrative in some ways. But mm. yeah, yeah it's that. But it's also you can go through emotion like changes of emotional state that have nothing to do with time passing. Yeah. Like you can do a whole lot of internal in an RPG. A lot of you know, there's a number of RPGs that do this where they take where they take internalized progress into account, which is which is divorced from any sort of temporal progression in the fiction. It's it's a it's an emotional or psychological progression. It's, well, it's a change. It's, it's still yeah. movement, even if it's internalized. It's yeah, but it's not. Uh, I don't know. Temporal, it's not necessarily it's representable causal. as over time, but it's still like change has to happen over time, right? Yeah, yeah. you kind of have to have yeah. two different states. Like the thing that that's bugging me with this is that, like the the game side of things, like the Ludo side, is basically the change itself. Like that's generally that's generally what causes the change is that part and then you have like how are you going to break apart the uh, narrative from it like it seems a little redundant to have both parts basically describing the same aspects so i actually have some thoughts on that um in at least how you have this question work um what design elements qualifies each and how and um, it might not be that it's necessarily a different design element, uh, as in it, we may be referring to the same mechanic, but telling the players how to interpret the outcome is, is more narrative-focused, or is completely narrative-focused, potentially. Um, narrative-facing. Narrative-facing, yeah, as opposed to sort of when and why you actually uh, use the the action or mechanic in the first place. Well, the why could be narrative. Yeah, it could be. But it, it, I mean, it, it could be demanded by the game too. I guess it depends. Um, it, some games don't even bother to... to um, to say how to interpret the outcome. Some games demand that you interpret it a certain way. Why did you do any of this for the fat loots? <laughs> that is why I butchered your family and all those puppies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. The number of times I've borne witness to that. <laughs> See, this is how you wind up number of uh, times I've initiated something like that. Oh, well, yeah, it's just this is how you wind up with John Wick leaving retirement. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I once I once blew up a nightclub with, you know, a couple thousand people in it in a game to kill one dude, but it really wasn't to kill one dude. It was so I could roll 50 d10 at once. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, of how much explosive I used. That was that's an so that's, what, what, what kind of intersection <laughs> well that's really interesting because i think however that game interacted with you as a person at that time was saying that the game was way more important than the narrative <laughs> mm-hmm. like it, it what's what really mattered or you are a complete psychopath <laughs> <laughs>
No, uh, <laughs> no, no comment. <laughs> all, that, all that is distinctly possible in Rob's case. <laughs> little of column A, little of column B. Uh, I've been tested. I'm not a psychopath. Uh, or at least I wasn't diagnosed as one when they. Never mind. Um, yeah, it doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, no, that that's it. That that's an interesting piece there because it's like I I took something in the fiction that was going to happen right we were going to we were going to take this guy out this was this was the mission right we were playing soldiers in a it was battle lords of the 23rd century which is a hilariously anachronistic game um but uh the point is you're playing like galactic mercenaries and so our job was to kill one dude and i was just like i just want to I, I I think if I used all the explosives on my person at this time, I would roll 50 D 10 and that's awesome. And that's what the plan is. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy who was the normal crazy dude in our game group was trying to talk me out of it. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> after people say, wow, even Derek was trying to talk you out of it. That's impressive. <laughs> so I am I think 50 that days. Yeah, I think I think that shows how it's a very vivid instance of how player motivation motivation can be can be both narrative and ludic mm -hmm. because you wanted to roll fifty dice, you wanted to yeah stretch that directive that far. Yeah, but why would you want to roll fifty dice? Because you want to see how the GM ends up describing it. You kind of want the narrative yeah. out of it too. It's not just, I yeah. rolled 50 D6 or 50 D10. It's like, I want to see you say in graphic detail, all the little pieces splattering everywhere. Nah, no. Well, no, it's strictly about rolling it. I wanted to see if I could hold that many. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's see, something totally yeah. different. <laughs> yeah, that, that, was, that was a ludic motivation. Yeah, totally. That, was I will very that. interesting also was very interesting also from a narrative perspective it just wasn't that, the primary motivation aka tuesday in Shadowrun. yeah pretty much and that's interesting too because and when we talk about like narrative structures when you have these um it's hard to it's hard to embody our characters a lot of the time it's hard to give our characters motivation and expect the players to be as interested in that motivation. So as game designers are, uh, we use, uh, ludic. I, I, I'm really, I'm confusing myself whenever we use this term. <laughs> so I'm sorry. Oh, no, you're right. I think you're about but, to say ludic, like a ludic carrot. Is that what Yeah, mean? exactly. Yeah. We use, we use game, uh, game mechanics and design to, to, um, motivate players because mm -hmm. it's hard sometimes hard to motivate players through character motivation um and i i sort of get super frustrated with so many especially osr players who say that <laughs> it, you know you don't need any extra motivation you know just playing the game or whatever bullshit um anyway i i i think that's i think that's a consequence of how tabletop games are designed and how they're expected to be played which is they overemphasize the ludic aspects and sort of ignore the narrative aspects of especially the narrative aspects of character definition because yeah. Yeah. If you look at the entirety of tabletop play that has happened, very little of it is character driven. Okay, that's I mean that's that's in an a individualistic sense. Broad trying to fix that. That's a very broad you could assertion, say, but I think you're right. Just being said, I because think I, nah. you could say that. Um acting according to your class is sort of character driven but it's really weak yeah because we picked that class as players we had an intention of a, a type of play mm -hmm. well mm -hmm. before that you're right it is and, pretty weak 
Yeah, so the difficulty the players the difficulty players have with envisioning the character comes from the games and the gameplay not emphasizing that element. Um, what were you going to say? Yeah, I agree that that's often the case. I also think that designers who have decided to use the the carrot, as it were, um, they just have gotten good results, and so they keep using it. It it's effective. I know not every designer desires to have that type of uh, gamifying or, or gamified um, motivation, but it it often works well. Yeah, particularly when it lines up with what the intent of the designer is to, because a lot of times those things are at odds with each other. You know, like a bunch of us have made games or prototypes of games that are that that are putting the ludic carrot in the same place as the narrative carrot, and a lot of games still don't do that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's kind of it's kind of laughable when it doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, it's like, what do you do expect to have happen? Like, <laughs> of course, there's going to be a disconnect. Mm. No, and there's um, there's a term for it as well. It's the ludo narrative dissonance, where mechanics in the game convey one type of uh, intent, and that's opposite to what the narrative is trying to portray. So, um, I think one of the examples was um, that I'd seen was um, Bioshock. I think where the idea of the game is that your character is supposed to be very selfless throughout the gameplay, um, like throughout the, the narrative. However, a lot of the mechanics in the game require you to be very selfish. Um, and I'm, I'm not speaking from experience here. I haven't played the game, but I'm uh, uh, taking this from a wiki article on it. Um, yeah. Hawking coined the term in response to the game Bioshock, which, according to him, promotes the theme of self-interest through its gameplay, while promoting the opposite theme of selflessness through its narrative, creating a violation of aesthetic distance that often pulls the player out of the game. So, there Poor is... Sorry? Well, I, I've never played Bioshock either. I said, or out of the mer- narrative, where it was just like, uh, you hit the you know, fast forward button whenever the narr- narration scene comes along. Mm-hmm. Just, like, just get me back uh, to the game. Mm-hmm. I have actually played it, and I, it's not entirely accurate because there's a, basically the way it tends to frame things is that if you're selfish, you get like short term benefits, but you're going to pay for it in the long run. If you tend to be selfless, then generally you get long-term benefits, but the short-term is going to kind of suck. So it, Because of gamer psychology, to... you will always take the long-term benefit, as far as I know. That's generally how it goes if you are aware of it. Like, if you don't know about, like, the long-term benefit, then there's, there's not an obvious reason not to do something like uh, one of the big mechanics in the game is for Bioshock is you wind up with like these uh, basically little girls that they're trying to make like all innocent and everything but if you rescue them you get like some bonus points that you can spend on your stats and stuff basically if you murder them you get even more Hmm. which is they're kind of trying to emphasize the idea that no no you're not actually supposed to like murder the little kids this is a terrible thing you're you're supposed to not do that because you're a good person and then we'll reward it for you for you know not doing that later if you're the gameist kind of person the person who's like looking into the game's 
mechanics in the long term and you're trying to min-max your character, there's actually like a certain balance you're supposed to have. I think it's like... I think you're only supposed to kill like two of them or something. But there's actually... There's like a actual um, balance that if you only kill two of them, you get the, the most possible rewards for all of it. <laughs> And mm. I don't think that's quite what they were going for. Huh. That's that's a bigger but, discussion on little girl murder than I expected to have tonight. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't even part of it. Anyway. <laughs> it's a strange game. Alright, so I think at this point we're going to wrap up this first portion of the episode. So, it's a great note to end it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so come back. It's like Ted Bundy would have wanted. A little, yeah. Come back for the next part, which will hopefully start with something lighter. But, you know, this is a dumpster fire and there's no good reason for you to be listening. So, all right. Um, we'll see you next time. Yeah. Have a you problem with temporal, next week. Next. No, next. Next. Next emotional interior event that you have when you think of us, that's when we'll see you. God. <laughs> I mean, if that's how you listen to this, I don't blame you. Kind of. In a weird way. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like there's at least one podcast I listen to in that format. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs>